Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page, where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. Today, I'm so excited to dive into a book that I read a million years ago called The Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker. I have always been a huge fan of Nicholson Baker. There is something about his writing that I find so incredibly engaging. I love the mezzanine. I love the fermata. I loved the Paul Chowder Chronicles uh, in particular. I love the anthologist. All of his work has always really, really spoken to me. But I am finding it in 2023 um, sort of renewed because I think I'm looking at it through this lens of mindfulness, which may sound a little woo-woo to some of you out there. But I mean, who can really argue against mindfulness in this day and age? You can just read Nicholson Baker and you can approach it in like a very uh, intellectual way or you can approach it through humor or you can approach it simply through compassion and humanity and um, you'll get to the same place, which is slowing down taking a look at what's going on around us, really paying attention to some of the absolute glories in this world, and really having a lot of gratitude for them. Honestly, in order to do Nicholson Baker justice, I would have to talk to you for like five hours. That wouldn't even do it. I'd have to talk to you forever and ever. Um, But today we're going to have a very pared down kind of introduction where I am just going to really make this argument about um, Nicholson Baker being your new mindfulness guru. So the way that I'm going to do that is talk quickly about very quickly about his biography. Then I'm going to talk uh, a little bit very briefly about um, what his writing is all about, what what he sort of tends to um, do with his writing. Then we're going to talk about the actual project of the mezzanine. So this novella, which was his very first novella, it was published in 1988. And this novella is doing something that is very similar to some of the other um, works that he does, particularly Room Temperature um, and the Fermata, where he's really slowing down time and taking a very, very close look at things that are very familiar but casting them in new light. So we're gonna take the project of the mezzanine and we're gonna really um, kind of uh, uh, break it down and to really sort of get a sense of what it is that he is doing and why it is so important that he is, um, is, is just giving us this gift, not only of slowing things way down and looking at the particulars that will sort of rarefy things that seem utterly mundane. He's not only doing that, but he's doing it with an incredible amount of compassion and humor um, and just inventiveness and with an eye that will honestly, I mean, this is one of the few books where I really can honestly say that I think it might change your life. Before I dive in, I wanna make a quick note um, of my hairdo and my outfit. So um, I have to say that in my mind, I thought the hair and the outfit were gonna look a little better. Um, I'm just like slightly disappointed. When I am up in my closet, getting ready to sit down and film one of these things, trying to think like, what is it that I can do to, to just, you know, do a little nod, give a little nod to whatever it is we're reading. And I'm up in my closet and the first thing I come across is a Ford t-shirt, you know, with like the Ford truck logo. And the part of myself that thinks of Nicholson Baker as this like postmodernist who uses a lot of brand names and who's concerned with consumerism and in like kind of a gentle, nice, compassionate, nostalgic way. I was like, oh, I can wear my Ford t-shirt. But then I got totally distracted by basic lace. So I've become taken, I mean, honestly, like I have a couple of nightgowns that have this lace on the, you know, hem or whatever that is so, so beautiful. And I mean, it's like, I don't know, a $40 nightgown or something, and it's very comfortable and it's like all modern and whatnot. But this lace looks like some kind of miracle. I was thinking, this is so Nicholson Baker for me to be like wondering who it is that, I mean, this cannot be hand done. So I'm like, what, I mean, I hate to think about it actually, but like, where is this lace coming from? Who is designing this lace? How are they making it so that it's so soft and stretchy and comfortable and how you can wash it a thousand times? These are old nightgowns I'm talking about. I mean, it is like a modern miracle, this lace. Then I was looking at the sweaters that I had knitted and I started to get to this idea of, you know, Argyle and cable knit. I had these names for all of these. If you hear that scratching, that's one of my dogs. Sorry, I'm, 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 I'm in a small space with a lot of dogs suddenly who might fight. 
uh, stay tuned. So um, we have houndstooth, uh, we have uh, smocking, we have tattersall. Tattersall was a word that came to me somewhat recently, and I was so happy to understand what tattersall was. You know, I saw some some good old standbys like paisley, which I honestly would not have thought that I had any paisley in my closet, but I did. I had some snaps, these really amazing snaps, and I was just marveling at the pearlized top of the snap and the way that the snap snaps together and that feeling of the snap snapping together. See, I was totally getting into this whole concept, and it was such an absolute delight. So um, those of you on the YouTube can see the elastic top that I'm wearing. If it weren't elastic, there's no way that you could get this over your head. So it's very clever in a very sort of Nicholson Baker kind of way. Born in New York City and then I think moved upstate and uh, was at the Eastman School of Music for some portion of time and then graduated from Haverford College. And it's interesting that he was at music school because music is profoundly important in terms of his prose. There are lots and lots of reasons um, why, I mean, you could do all sorts of, you know, scholarly studies on sort of the musicality of his prose. And you also get some little things like at some point in um, in the mezzanine, in fact, when it, I mean, it's sort of like he's talking about that idea of like the violins of sympathy, um, but he's talking about the viola of sympathy. And you get this sense that he's very, very not knowledgeable about a lot of things and that music is one of them. There are times when he talks about counterpoint. I think he says like contrapunto or whatever the like musical term is. And of course the fermata, which is one of his um, most important works, is it's also a small novella like the mezzanine. It is so good and it is so funny. It's all about sex. Three of his books are, um, you know, I think they're classified as erotica, which is interesting to me. They're, it's so explicit and so graphic and so excellent and funny. Um, I don't find them arousing. <laughs> I, um, It's interesting or perhaps totally predictable that I just generally, like, I have never been a fan of erotica. I just get too distracted by the choice of words or like whatever the language is or whatever the person is doing with the writing. It's just not, um, I mean, which is not to say that I never think that writing is sexy. That is not true. But I just like purposeful erotica, not really my thing. But of course the fermata is like a music sign that tells you that you need to sort of stop everything. Um, and what happens in the book is that this person, our narrator, is able to stop time and then he does all these crazy things. I haven't read it for a long time and I wonder if it stands up because it might actually be really gross. It might be like, um, might be really, uh, it might feel very predatory. I don't remember it feeling like that at all. It's actually an interesting question. I might get back to you on that. I might not. Um, but this question of how you could have that be the conceit of the work and have it not feel really rapey, I'm not really sure how that works. But I do remember thinking it was really, really great and inventive and interesting and hilarious. So um, again, he was at this music school. That is where you presumably get things like the viola, the distinction between the viola and the violin and the idea of the fermata. So um, he has his musical background, but he goes to Haverford and he... He's a pacifist. He wrote um, a book called Human Smoke, which is about uh, the, the sort of lead up to the Second World War. Human Smoke is just like a giant, giant book. It's just like this huge, huge fat tome, um, which is interesting to me because Baker either seems to be writing these like 135 page novellas or these like gigantic books about uh, pacifism and war and um, these very sophisticated ideas. Okay. His first novel was, in fact, The Mezzanine, and uh, he went on to publish The Fermata, and he's written 10 novels and I think six books of nonfiction. He got the Book Critics Circle, the Book Circle Critics Award, or whatever that one is, um, and a couple of other awards, and, and has been very successful and is just endlessly inventive and interesting uh, for me. Okay, so we are now going to take a look at the novella itself. Uh, those of you who are here to become a better reader, I will repeat yet again that all you have to do, uh, in my opinion, is pay close attention. So Nicholson Baker is actually just like a whole, it's, this is like a primer or like an exercise book or in fact a masterclass in paying attention. So um, the first thing, of course, we need to take a look at is the, um, you know, the title of the book. I really like this cover. I actually have ended up with lots of um, editions or whatever you call it, lots of... Uh, 
editions, yeah, of this book. And I really love this one the best. Um, I, I, it's funny, this is not how I pictured him. I don't know how, I mean, he's obviously wearing dress shoes in it um, and, and, you know, dress pants and whatnot. But for some reason, this seems kind of older and more dated. But that's probably what things look like in 1985. I love the color of the font. It's a little hard to see here on the uh, YouTube. But what we've got are these two different shades of purple that are taken from the pant. And what I like about this is that you don't really notice that the pants are purple until you have these two different shades of those hues. And then you realize that these pants, which you kind of read as black pants, are in fact purple. So you, you start thinking already in the way that Nicholson Baker asks you to think, which is you're looking at something black pants and what you're thinking to yourself is wait these are actually purple what what is it in my brain that is reading these purple pants as black i like this also obviously we are showcasing the uh escalator here one thing that i love is nicholson baker um in the paris review uh interview with him the guy starts off by saying that he really loves artificial constraints that Nicholson Baker likes a constraint on a story. So in this case, the constraint is that he is telling the entire story um, within the, the course of his, uh, of his uh, ride up the escalator. So he has this incredible book, I believe it was his second, called Room Temperature, which is about him um, giving a bottle to one of his children. I believe it's his daughter. And uh, it's all kind of in the course of maybe even the one bottle that he is giving her when she is an infant, um, or maybe it's like during the course of the afternoon. But there's, um, again, a very, very uh, serious time constraint. Um, and obviously here we have the physical constraint as well um, in, in this idea of the escalator ride. Uh, the idea of the mezzanine as a title, I like it. I don't love it. Fermata to me is a much better, um, a much better title. I don't know if it's better, but I, it's a title that's more resonant and interesting to me. I like Room Temperature. There's another one called The Everlasting Story of Nori. I have read it, but now my memory is so shitty. I can't remember if it's like a children's story or what. I think it might be. Um, and Human Smoky has a lot of um, very resonant titles. The Mezzanine is, it's a good title, I think. It's, you know, I think we all know what a mezzanine is, but the mezzanine, if you look it up, um, it's an intermediate floor between two main floors. Usually it's between the ground floor and the first floor. Oftentimes it's low ceilinged, which is interesting, and because it's kind of halfway, and um, sometimes it's open, like it'll have like a balcony kind of area. It comes uh, from the Latin, um, mediatus, medianus. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna, if you're watching YouTube, you're gonna be able to see it there. If you're not, you're gonna have to look it up yourself. I think it's probably medianus, um, which becomes mezzanino in Italian, which is like halfway, which becomes mezzanine in 1600s in France, um, which we adopt as the mezzanine. So um, do I do I love the, the, the title? I don't really love it, but I do like this idea of something that is kind of in between two things, that it's kind of a stopping point and a vantage point potentially between two other things. Because a lot of what uh, Baker is doing, again, is that he is sort of slowing everything down and in between, say, two activities or in between two moments of time, everything is slowing down and he's really digging into uh, incredibly fine detail in a way that is super engaging. So this idea of being between two things at kind of an intermediate level and potentially having some kind of overview of those things uh, is, is very compelling to me. And I think very fitting in terms of what the, the, the sort of purpose, what the project of this novel is. Today, we're going to dive, as we always do, into uh, the first couple of sentences of the book. Uh, they're important, but we're not going to spend a lot of time dissecting them because I want to get onto this idea of sort of the larger project of the book. And I'm not going to spoil anything about this ride up the escalator in case you are using this lecture today as an introduction to Nicholson Baker. So here we have the beginning of chapter one. At almost one o'clock, I entered the lobby of the building where I worked and turned toward the escalators, carrying a black penguin paperback and a small white CVS bag, its receipt stapled over the top. The escalators rose toward the mezzanine where my office was. 
They were the freestanding kind, a pair of integral signs swooping upward between the two floors they served without struts or piers to bear any intermediate weight. So the very first sentence of this, um, I just love it. Uh, I think what got me was the penguin paperback and the CVS bag. So this is a very postmodern thing, which we'll get into later, this use of, um, of brand names in order uh, to both to, to sort of criticize consumerism and to really sort of place us in a very specific time in history. But it's also, um, you know, this is not a brand new thing the postmodernists came up with, the postmodernists being a movement sort of the latter half of the 20th century, um, a very hyper-masculine, hyper-intellectualized uh, kind of writing. So um, one thing that you find out later is, in fact, that this Penguin paperback is Aurelius's Meditations, which I love. Again, you don't know that until much later, but it's so perfect that the book that he is carrying is about meditations because, in fact, what we are heading into here with our trusty narrator with his CVS bag with the receipt stapled over the top is a, a, a book that is all about very careful meditation on the mundane. Okay. We're going to move on, in fact, to what the project of the novel is. And this is simply my own way to break it down. It's a very, like, um, Nicholson-Baker thing to want to kind of break this down and, and give it sort of a, a taxonomy or figure out its purpose. Um, but it's, it's also very kind of easy to do because... Um, one of the things that Nicholson Baker does is there are these little kind of um, meta moments where he is in talk. He is in fact talking about what he is doing with the book itself, um, or he has a line that is explaining what he's doing at the time. But it's um, an explanation for a small part of the book that can serve also as um, an explanation for the for the book itself. It's a fractal. So um, I learned from one of you YouTube watchers, in fact, that a fractal is a physics term. It simply means that a tiny part of a whole, I mean, I am not a physicist, I am totally butchering this, but the idea is that you could have a little chunk of something that is sort of the same thing as its whole. Okay, so um, one of the things, the first thing we want to talk about here in terms of the project of the mezzanine is this idea of revealing um, what, what is actually happening when we are doing these very sort of automatic or habitual acts. So it's this idea that they are very, very complicated, very complex things that we are doing all day long. Um, and that we are totally oblivious to them and that we should not be. So on page 20, we have a good uh, sort of definition of this. So this is so funny to me. At one point he's talking about um, about the, the act of cleaning, the act of sweeping his room. Um, and, and it's this sort of existential idea that, that he will be happier if he is cleaning a space. But what happens when he is doing this is that he has a moment of reflection about sweeping the floor in his room in the house that he shares with other people. But it can very easily adapt itself to a, sort of a statement about what the entire novel is doing. So about the sweeping, um, he says, it is as if I were putting each chair leg and caster and door jam in quotation marks. It made me see these familiar features of my room with freshened receptivity. So you have this idea of seeing things in freshened receptivity. Receptivity? I think it's receptivity. Okay, um, and another example of this, this idea of sort of recognizing things um, anew or afresh, um, we have on page 53. This is when he is talking about um, the ideal way to eat a sandwich. And again, every time I cut a sandwich on the diagonal, I think of Nicholson Baker, because in fact, that is a more efficient way to eat a sandwich. I concluded that there had been a logic behind the progress away from the parallel and toward the diagonal cut, and that the convention was not, as it might first have appeared, merely an affectation of short order cooks. So again, this is this idea, you know, we've, we've, some people cut the, you know, the sandwich right down the middle. To me, that seems very um, like you would for a little kid, like their PB&J in their school sandwich, I mean, in their school lunch bag. And maybe there's a reason. I'm sort of imagining that maybe like in transit, it's better to have the two parallel, um, you know, sort of chunks instead of the two triangles. Um, but He's also saying, uh, you know, there's quite a long description here about why a diagonally cut sandwich is in fact more efficient in terms of fitting each uh, successive bite into your mouth. And so what he is saying here, or what he is doing, is, is really sort of um, calling our attention to this idea of just how we cut a sandwich. 
you know, it gets very quickly, it gets into sort of this debate territory when in fact all he is doing is beautifully calling attention to something that we do all the time. The mere fact that we cut the sandwich is interesting. I don't always cut the sandwich, but it is such a luxury. You know, it makes it feel like a meal. It's kind of like the panini maker. God knows what Nicholson Baker thinks of that. I mean, that's like real advancement in the uh, in the life, you know, trajectory of the sandwich. On page 70, we have another example of this idea of, of really sort of shining a light onto tasks and onto familiar acts and making them fresh and new. So um, he's talking about when he gets the check. And this was an interesting, um, this sort of veers into the territory of passing along knowledge. Uh, but he is talking about signing uh, the check at the end of a meal in a restaurant. You experience the pleasure of writing down the tip's amount through several layers of carbon paper, bearing down hard against the little black tray the restaurant has provided to keep its compensation off the tablecloth. So first of all, I just think this is so, I mean, there is a nostalgia here. Uh, this is written again in late, in sort of mid to late 80s when you would still maybe have a carbon copy, um, which I don't, I guess maybe in a diner you would have that. I don't know. I mean, it's weird. I don't remember that ever being the case. Well, that's not true. I mean, I guess we had those ones that like you would write on it. Um, I didn't think of it as being a carbon copy, but maybe it was actually. I keep having to shake my arm because the light keeps going off in here. Um, but we have this concept of, um, of why, in fact, restaurants provide that little black tray. And it's so nice to know, like, there's an actual reason why they're providing it. It is a, it's a, it's a nicer experience to write on something, writing on the linen of the tablecloth or, like, write on the, the, the like, wood of, the, of a table does not sound great to me. It sounds nicer to write, especially if it's one of those padded, um, you know, like, kind of soft, squishy, folded things that they bring with your credit card slip. Um, I like that for sure. Um, but then there's this idea of them not wanting you to, uh, to, what does it say here? To, to keep, it's provided to keep its compensation off the tablecloth, which is so funny. He's not, you know, he's not just saying that the, the copy is going to go through, but it's this idea of keeping the compensation off the tablecloth. So we don't have time to dig into this too deeply, but one of the best things that, that Nicholson Baker does is he has this incredible range of, uh, of diction. He can use very kind of plain, folksy, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, like chummy kind of language. He does lots and lots of neologism, which is just making up words on his own that are so funny and inventive. Or he can talk with this very sort of, um, you know, inflated diction. And he um, uses all of those to incredible effect. I mean, just all sorts of um, like pyrotechnical use of language. It's just unbelievable. But here we have this idea of um, they have provided this to keep its compensation off the tablecloth. It's just such a, a, a somewhat inflated and yet such a beautiful uh, sentiment. It also avoids repeating the word tip, um, which just is the sign of a good writer. Now we are going to move on from this idea of revealing the complexity in everyday things to this idea of quantifying or naming things that have been sort of heretofore unnamed. So this is a little bit of that kind of observational humor that you might see in like, um, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm or Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld famously being a, a television show about nothing. You know, some people would argue, in fact, that, that Nicholson Baker writes these books that are about nothing. Or if you boil it down, you know, it's a book about a man riding up an escalator. That's it. Um, but in fact, both of them, both Seinfeld and all of Nicholson Baker's work are much, much more than than simply, you know, a book about nothing. Um, but this idea of quantifying um, is this kind of observational humor or, or naming something that, that really does that thing where, you know, we have all of these ideas that, that, that it, if something doesn't have a name, it's very difficult for us to uh, sort of conceptualize when in fact here he is naming things that help us conceptualize new concepts entirely. Okay, we're looking at page 26 briefly. So this is when he, he has made a bunch of different theories and he's kind of walking us, no pun intended, walking us through um, this coincidence of his shoelaces having broken one day apart. So the day before one of his shoelaces breaks and then the next day uh, the other shoelace breaks. So he's trying to explain to himself this phenomenon. And he says, all right, much better. This walking flexion model, as I styled it to myself, in opposition to the earlier pulling and fraying model, accounted for the coincidence of yesterday's and today's breakages very well, I thought. 
So you have this idea of a, um, of a walking flexion model versus a uh, pulling and fraying model. So this idea of having models for anything, I mean, he's, he's naming these theories that he has, but of course it's also, um, you know, he's talking about this idea of when you're moving your foot in a shoe, that there's a certain amount of tension that is put, uh, this flexion that is put on the shoelace versus the, the force of tying the shoelace itself. So um, this is of course also one of these um, times when we are looking at something that is a very kind of mundane task, a very mundane thing. We deal with shoelaces all the time as people without giving them much thought. He is encouraging us here to think about them. There's that hilarious moment when he's like sort of proud of himself because he can tie the shoelaces, uh, you know, without looking at them. Where um, that there's a there's a kind of positivity, there's an optimism, there's an ebullience that's just all through this book. I think ebullience is a word. Um, if it's not, then I, let's just pretend I was doing like a little neologism a la a la Nicholson Baker. Okay, um, we're gonna look at page 39 for another example of this kind of naming or quantifying something. So I want now to do two things, to set the escalator to the mezzanine against a clean mental background as something fine and worth my adult time to think about and to state that while I did draw some large percentage of joy from the continuities that the adult escalator ride established with childhood escalators, I will try not to glide on the reminiscential tone as if only children had the capacity for wonderment at this great contrivance. So the first part is where we really have this notion of what he is setting out to do, what the project of the book is, to name and quantify these things. In this case, he's, he's giving us this notion of putting the, the escalator, kind of rarefying it, putting it, he makes that beautiful statement about how anything can look amazing if you put it against a clean white background or the black velvet of a museum. So he really wants to, to take the escalator and pull it out of its um, context and take a good look at it while naming um, this idea about what he is doing. So it's very important to mention, the reason I read all the way through to the end of this is this notion um, that only children had the capacity for wonderment at the great contrivance. He's arguing against that. He's saying that it's that we all should be in wonder. We should all have wonderment about these amazing, uh, you know, modern conveniences. So this idea um, of wonder and of a childlike wonder is something that is sown all throughout the novel, uh, the novella, in a really compelling way. Okay. Um, the other one of the other elements of this project that the mezzanine is undertaking is this idea of creating taxonomies. So he's creating kind of categories or ways to understand uh, these mundane things that he is sort of putting out onto uh, the black velvet of the museum. Uh, but he wants to to have names and sort of categories that will that will clarify. So on page 13, so this is, it's actually a very important moment in the book, which is when his shoelace breaks. And he says this, the curve of incredulousness and resignation I rode out at that moment was a kind caused in life by a certain class of events, disruptions of physical routines, such as, and then he goes on to describe um, these, these sort of uh, examples of things that feel like it felt when he pulled uh, the shoelace and it broke. One is the idea of stepping, um, you know, when you get to the top of a flight of stairs and you step up one more and in fact there is not a top stair and you have that feeling of, of falling through space. Uh, another, it's so beautiful, um, when he's talking about the, the band-aids, how they used to have that red string and how you go to pull it because it used to sort of tear the side of this like glassine kind of container um, and you pull it and it came unattached and you, you sort of free falled, fold. That is not how you say that. You free fell. Um, so it's it's this idea. He's having this taxonomy about um, certain class of events, disruptions of physical routines. And it's so good because he has all these kind of mini stories. And it's actually very, um, it's very sort of taxonomical here because he has A, B, and C. There's a lot of playing with punctuation and a lot of playing with grammar and with, uh, you know, the organization of the book. 
lots and lots of footnotes, which is a very postmodern kind of thing. But a, a footnote is essentially, it's like a tiny little mezzanine. You know, you're reading along in the text, but you have these kind of intermediate stops that we have um, where he is breaking out and, and doing something in a footnote. In this case, we actually have A, B, and C to describe the kinds of events that might fall into the category of disruptions of physical routine. Okay, let's look at another example of this kind of taxonomy. So on page 16, it's this amazing thing where he, um, some of the book is very nostalgic. So one of the things the book is doing is it's taking a good look at nostalgia and it's taking a look at uh, memory and it's taking a look at childhood. And, and when you sort of first master a lot of these tasks that he is now analyzing in such detail. So um, he makes another list here. Uh, this one has eight, it's numbered. This is a list of advancements that he has made in his life. As it happened, the first three major advances in my life, and I will list the advances here, and then he lists them. They're things like shoe tying, steadying hand against sneaker when tying, brushing tongue as well as teeth, and he goes on and on. Um, these major advancements, three of the big first ones, happened when he was a child. So he goes on to talk about this idea of novelty and mastering these skills as a child that then become so rote that we no longer think of them. Um, but so I love this idea of these actual kind of lists that he has, um, you know, it's, it, and sometimes it's, it's, uh, alphabetized, not alphabetized, but sometimes they're letters, sometimes they're numbers, which I think he's poking a bit of fun at himself, this idea of trying to get everything in order, um, and, and trying to order things, frankly, that are very difficult to, to order. Okay. And then on 52, I have to put my glasses on for this one because, uh, these little footnotes are very, very small. So this is the cutest part. This is when he is learning um, how to turn a shirt inside and out. So this is, again, one of these advancements that he learned as a child. And he says, Soon I created a special order in the taxonomy of human dexterity to cover this kind of trick. And then a little bit further down. The dexterity was based on a leap of mind that had understood the need for a set of seemingly incomprehensible preparations before a single transforming motion like that disclosed your purpose. So this is one of those things, it's one of those mysteries that as a child, you're not understanding why an adult would be doing a certain thing, or you can't quite figure out how an adult would, for example, this just happened just now. Um, I was peeling apples with my son. It was so, he was so awkward. Apologies to my youngest son. I mean, he was very careful and you know, I have peeled many, many more apples than he has, but it was um, it was really actually interesting to think how, uh, how practiced I am at this skill. I didn't even think of it. I was having a hard time explaining it to him. So, um, it, it, I mean, he's a very adept and very competent person. And in fact, he did a very good job peeling his apples. They were peeled better than mine, simply just not as efficient as mine were. So one of the most compelling things I find in Nicholson Baker is you end up learning so much. And they're things that you kind of didn't know that you cared about, but they're very compelling pieces of information that you walk away with. And he has the most heartwarming description of, um, of what, why this is important, why, why this kind of transfer of knowledge um, is so satisfying. So he is in the act during much of the book of transferring knowledge to us, the reader, but there's also a moment in the book where um, knowledge is transferred from one of the receptionists in his office to uh, the character in the book. So on page 34, it's so interesting to me, um, so much good stuff is in these footnotes. So it's, I'm just, I'm cracking up at my glasses. I look like Edna, the like Taylor person on um, The Incredibles. Uh, but this, there's a lot of really compelling information is in the, uh, the, footnotes. It was very interesting to me, two things about reading the mezzanine. One is that I kept thinking, okay, well, I can skim some part of this because like, I don't know, there's going to be something that's going to be like not that compelling and I'm going to want to skim it. Never, never. He would start talking about something and I'd be like, okay, this is going to be so boring. And never was it boring, even if it was something that I didn't think that I cared about at all. The other thing is I kept having to force myself to not read with a pencil. So all of you out there who are here to you know become better readers, I strongly, strongly encourage you to read with a pencil in hand. I know um, for some people, if you wanna be able to pass a book along to someone else, um, which I actually have a little bit mixed feelings because I feel like um, you know there's a very large ghost readership 
uh, out there, especially among women. And I absolutely understand the importance um, of economizing and of sharing a book, uh, but I also understand the importance of, of buying a copy of a book uh, in order to support the author who is writing the book. Um, same thing with libraries. Obviously, you can't write in a library book, um, and I and I love the 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 accessibility of the library and all that the library has to offer. But again, um, there's a limited uh, you know compensation there for people who deserve compensation. These creative types who are trying to write books for us. You could also write on a post-it note and slap it in there if you know just or keep a pad of paper nearby. I don't know. Um, I feel like maybe. People don't write in books as much as I do. I'm sure they do not. Um, but the point is, I kept having to write, I read without my pencil in hand, which feels very strange to me. But it was because I was making so many notes in the margins. I was interacting so like rigorously with the text that it was taking forever to read in a delicious way, in like the best way ever. But still, like I finally was like, I have got to read. I did a lot of reading in the bathtub because it's a little harder to make notes when I'm in the bathtub. And also like just I was like, I've got to put the pencil down. I got to just read this and absorb it and not be uh, taking so much time. Okay, so on the bottom of page 34, this is that idea of this transfer of knowledge and why it is so satisfying. The, the reason why the, the information that she's passing on is very simple, which is simply that you could buy shoelaces at CVS. It made us both feel we were moving ahead in our lives. At random, on errands of her own, she had learned something that other people apparently didn't know, and she was now passing the knowledge on to me. It's so beautiful. This idea of it made us both feel we were moving ahead in our lives. And it's true. It's such a valuable thing. I mean, everyone knows how good it is to um, to be able to solve a problem for someone or to be able to give them a recommendation or be able to tell them how to do something. I mean, let us uh, have a fat moment here where we uh, you know, talk about the idea of unsolicited advice or unsolicited information. That is not good. Same uh, for mansplaining, same for any kind of condescending garbage that people are offering up to uh, other people. But this idea of truly desired information or truly useful information or knowledge passing from one person to the other, it really is a beautiful thing. And it does exactly that. I took my glasses off so I can hardly read this, but it says it made us both feel we were moving ahead in our lives. It's so beautiful. It's really just a, um, and this human moment, you know, they're both feeling so good about this. And it's just because, you know, she told him he can buy shoelaces at CVS. It's really beautiful. Okay, um, another thing that uh, the mezzanine is trying to do is present us with these kind of micro histories. So we have uh, these these kind of stories that are, are um, very briefly alluded to, but we we it's he's so skilled at at sort of providing details and and very scant details, but very specific and awesome details that allow us to kind of um, extrapolate a whole entire uh, relationship or a whole entire other story. I found so many of these chapters like being kind of a cliffhanger, which is so interesting because again, we are talking about a man who is riding up an escalator and observing things. Like this is, it just shouldn't be quite as, uh, you know, um, like quite as much of a page turner as it felt to me. So um, he does in these kind of micro histories that he's doing, there's a lot of um, talk about nostalgia and there's a lot of talk about memory. And a lot of talk about, frankly, um, things we've touched on already, which is this idea that we we master these uh, you know tasks when we are very young, and then we become sort of oblivious to them when, in fact, we shouldn't really be you know giving ourselves a little pat on the back. I was thinking about dress shoes and shoelaces and like leather shoelaces as opposed to um, how everyone now, like even in fancy offices, everyone wears sneakers. And I mean, when's the last time a sneaker uh, you know lace broke? I have uh, certain children who have worn pairs of Vans so much into the ground that definitely shoelaces have broken. Um, but honestly, shoelaces are made these days really like everything else to never ever break down and never ever die, um, which is maybe not great. Okay, but um, back to this idea of these micro histories and nostalgia and memory. We're gonna take a look at page 47. 
So a couple of important things before I read here on page 47. Um, one is that the uh, the gentleman in our book, uh, turns out his name is Howie, which is not mentioned until, you know, fairly late in the text and it, not a lot is made of it, but Howie is such a funny and, and kind of sweet name. It's really perfect in lots of ways. Um, but in the story, if this is his first job out of college, um, you know, he's he talks about having been, got, been given uh, his dress shoes by his father, uh, you know, kind of on the occasion of this first job and how they are two years old. So we know he's about 23 years old. There's another couple of instances in the book where he is older. At one point, he specifically says he's 30 years old. So one of the things that he's very uh, preoccupied with, I mean, and this is such a shocking, I mean, he seems like an older person to me. This does not seem, he seems kind of like a uh, uh, you know, just, I don't know, like a, like a little, like a dad or something. Like, just like he seems like a little bit of an older kind of fuddy-duddy is the word that's coming to my mind, which he's not. Um, he's only 23. But he has, um, you know, he's a very young person at the beginning of the book. And so there's a lot of concern or a lot of sort of thinking about nostalgia and childhood. So on 47, he says this. Will the time ever come when I am not so completely dependent on thoughts I first had in childhood to furnish the feedstock for my comparisons and analogies and sense of the parallel rhythms of microhistory? So here we have this idea of these microhistories. Um, and for example, he's talking at this point about um, having bit, had milk delivered in bottles and how um, then when the invention of the, the paper milk carton came out, he was just astonished and, and had this, um, you know, the, the milk carton was novel and interesting. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, question about this microhistory that he has about, you know, um, the, the nostalgia for the glass bottles, but then the kind of marveling at the um, incredible design of the paper carton. So down at the bottom of this paragraph on 47, I reached this new stage of life, the end of the rule of nostalgia, the beginning of my true majority. And luckily, I can remember the very day that my life as an adult began. So I love this idea that we have, um, you know, th these micro histories, which are, it's a very apt term. He says it himself, um, th this micro history that it, for the longest time, you know, until he's 23 years old, it's, it's sort of ruled. Everything is kind of uh, compared to when he was a child. And then he does this kind of funny mathematical, he must have studied math because there's quite a bit of math in here. Um, he actually has the most incredible uh, article in Harper's Magazine about how Algebra 2 is just like the worst thing that's ever happened. And it is so funny. Like it's basically this whole thing about like, why is Algebra 2 this horrible thing that everyone has to be able to do in the United States? I mean, it's really a very good question. You know, and he really does this whole thing about how demoralizing it can be for people and how how really it can kind of get people off on the wrong path. He seems like someone who would, in fact, have a very good uh, understanding of algebra. I don't know. Maybe he was a geometry guy like me. Um, but he has this sense that that and he does this mathematical equation where when he is 23, he is beginning to have enough sort of adult and kind of like not childhood uh, benchmarks for things. And it's just this beautiful idea of of how he is viewing things and what the sort of context that he is placing these mundane activities, what the context for those uh, actually is. So, um, and again, he wrote this when he was young. It was his first novel. Let's see, it came out in 88 and he was born in 57. So uh, if my math is correct, he's 31 when it comes out, which is uh, exactly, you know, the guy who's driving on the highway and sees the garbage truck who is 30 years old in this book. Um, that, that we can imagine is the gentleman Howie who is writing this story. And very easily, we can um, sort of look at this whole thing as being autobiographical. I don't know how autobiographical it is, but I love um, that, you, that you're sort of invited and, and very tempted, I think, to read this as Nicholson Baker himself. If you're watching on the YouTube, I'm gonna throw up some pictures of uh, Nicholson Baker with his children which will just, first of all, just like melt your heart, which apologies for the cliche, but like he just, there's one with his baby where his baby son, I think his name is Elijah, Elias, Elias, I think. Um, the baby looks exactly like him and he's probably like 35 in the picture and it is so, it is so funny. So you have this sense of um, of Nicholson Baker as, as sort of inviting us to read his fiction as nonfiction. Um, not in the case of the Fermata, 
because there's like some supernatural stuff that's happening there. Um, and certainly not in the case of Paul Chowder, because that is a very specific persona um, who is really, uh, you know, really sort of leads a life of his own. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but he's certainly not a married uh, man and father of two living in Maine. So he's later in his career, Nicholson Baker is, um, you know, creating more boundaries between himself autobiographically and his uh, characters. Okay, so the last thing I want to do is to take a look at, um, at a really beautiful passage um, on page 54. So this is another one of those beautiful micro-histories. This is a, a slightly longer passage, but it's really just beautiful. And it really shows a lot here um, in terms of Nicholson Baker has this unbelievable talent for writing dialogue and making it sound so real. And it is working so hard because it's really telling us so much about the people uh, who are speaking. In this case, um, it's very much about a, kind of a father-son thing. And um, in fact, like a father-son and uncle, it's very avuncular. There are all these different um, beautiful things that emerge in this very short passage. Once again, uh, it is a passage that takes place entirely within a footnote that is a very long footnote is spilled from one page to the other. And um, he has uh, established right before this that his father had this beautiful um, habit of hanging all of his beautiful neckties over the beautiful crystal doorknobs of their home. Um, he laments at one point the fact that doorknobs no longer um, are actual knobs. And he talks about the beautiful satisfaction um, of, of his childhood home of turning these crystal doorknobs. So, um, and, and you can imagine all of these beautiful fabrics kind of, um, oh, very much like the fabrics that I just uh, was showing you from my closet, um, these beautiful ties that are hanging over these beautiful crystal, faceted crystal doorknobs. I mean, they're probably glass, but you know, beautiful nonetheless. He says this, this is about him and his father. When I had dinner with him and other relatives in the first year of my job, I wore the best tie I had bought to date. And as my uncle conferred with the hostess about the table, my father turned toward me caught sight of my tie and said, hey, hey, nice, fingering the silk. Is this one of mine or one you bought? I picked this one up a while ago, I guess, I said, pretending to think back with effort, when in fact I remembered every detail of the transaction, remembered carrying the very light, very expensive bag home not more than five weeks before. A neat tie, a neat tie. He lowered his glasses and bent to examine the pattern more closely, Rows of paired lozenges intersecting like Venn diagrams, mostly red. Very fine. I said, this is one I haven't seen before, have I? Fingering his tie in return, really nice. This, he said, he flipped it over as if he too had to remind himself of the circumstances in which he had bought it. I picked this up at Willock Brothers. As we were all seated at the table, I looked around at my male relative's ties at my grandfather's tie and my uncle's tie and my aunt's father's tie. And it was clear to me that my father and I were without question wearing the two best looking ties at the table that night. A sudden balloon payment of pride and gratitude expanded within me. Later still, when I went home to visit, I swapped a tie with him. And when I visited the following Thanksgiving, I spotted what had been my tie hanging over a doorknob in the midst of all the ties he had bought himself. And it fit right in. It fit right in. It's so sweet. I'm literally tearing up here. I mean, it's just, it, it's so human and it's so beautiful and it's so kind of subtly done and just so resonant. And this, oh, I mean, you just have a sense of this dad as being so awesome. Um, you also have a very quick interaction with his mother at one point that makes her seem very, very brainy. Um, and you get this sense, you know, when his father is lowering his eyeglasses and peering closely at the tie, um, you know, you get the sense that the apple is not falling far from the tree here and that our Howie um, has picked up this appreciation for the mundane and for minor, minor details very um, sort of honestly from his parents who frankly just seem like lovely, lovely people. We know very little about them, but everything we know about them is just 
it's just beautiful. And that is actually one of the um, one of the things that I think is very nice to close today with, which is that um, in sort of uh, in the 80s, we had this movement called postmodernism, and Nicholson Baker is following some of that postmodern stuff. So um, the big postmodern writers were like Thomas Pynchon and David Foster Wallace. Um, th those were kind of the, the two big ones. There are a bunch of other people, uh, Don DeLillo a little bit, um, uh, I can't think of anyone else right now, but what that that kind of writing had a bunch of uh, you know a bunch of characteristics to it, and this book, the mezzanine, and a lot of Nicholson Baker's writing has those techniques, uh, those yeah techniques. So things like um, you know footnotes and inflated diction and this kind of hyper um, you know dissection of things, and uh, it's it tends to use a lot of like brand names and be very specific about consumerism and and specific about, um, you know, sort of the ills of the 1980s and the 70s, certainly. But um, it also, in my mind, uh, postmodernism, I used to be a huge fan of Pynchon and DeLillo and uh, David Foster Wallace, who is, uh, you know, his writing is absolutely unbelievable. But all of those men, I think, are guilty of this kind of hyper-masculine voice, which is... Um, Finding, I'm now finding it a little off-putting. Um, and also this hyper, hyper intellectualism, which is fun in the sense it's kind of like a game. It's like doing a crossword a little bit. Um, it's sort of, you know, testing out your knowledge of your, you know, your retention of all of those SAT words. Uh, but there's a lot of elitism in there and there's a lot of cynicism. And and it's, it's very um, rarefied and frankly, it, it doesn't have a lot of heart. And so I have lost patience a little bit for a lot of the postmodern writers. It's very inventive and it tends to be inventive in form, you know, things like including lists, exactly like uh, like Nicholson Baker does. But what is saving Nicholson Baker, I would argue, um, from the sort of fate of those hyper-masculine, hyper-intellectual, elitist men is this idea of, of how warm and how um, like absolutely compassionate and, and um, vulnerable and beautiful this, this character is, this Howie. And the fact is, you end up loving every single person. Um, Tina, who's one of the, the receptionists, you know, you only see her a little bit, but you just love her. And there's a woman, um, L, just the letter L, who um, our Howie is together with. And you love her. You love everyone. And people generally do not disappoint. And people are, um, you know, if they do something wrong in this book, uh, then, you know, it's, it's very sort of quickly explained away. So you have, you have this sense of humanity as being good. There's this incredible optimism here and trying to understand in much the same way as he is breaking down these mundane tasks and actions, you have this real sense of trying to understand people by breaking down circumstances and actions uh, and motives, that sort of thing. So we have this beautiful sense of optimism and compassion and humanity. And also you have just this enormous humor. It is so clever and so funny and so engaging and, and sort of fun to read, which, you know, there's some humor in the postmodernist, but it tends to be very snarky. And Nicholson Baker is almost always the opposite of snarky, which is just an absolute joy to read. So I am going to end by saying that part of the reason why I think he should be your new mindfulness guru is this idea of optimism and this incredible generosity of spirit that he shows again and again and again in his descriptions of people and of actions and of circumstance. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. So read the mezzanine and, um, you know, you'll find yourself just like going about your life with perhaps a bit more attention being paid to the moment and being paid to just the absolute miracle of things like escalators and uh, things like dry cleaning boxes and things like milk cartons. So um, this is really honestly my gift to you, which is just to introduce you if you don't already know the work of Nicholson Baker and to break it down if you do know it and like it and really, um, you know, can't quite figure out why it's so charming and engaging. I hope that, um, you know, today's talk gave you a better sense of why, in fact, his writing is so worthwhile and frankly, so important in this day and age. So enjoy the mezzanine. And if you like poetry, you must, must, must read The Anthologist, which is part of the Paul Chowder uh, Chronicles. It's an unbelievable, unbelievable book about poetry that is so Funny, I'm not a huge reader of poetry and, um, you know, Nicholson Baker's Paul Chowder had me actually going back and reading uh, some poetry.
Okay, thank you for joining me. After you do all that, head back to the Fox page, find something else to listen to, and happy reading.